Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oratari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who regularly collects questions in an effigy of his own head. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and why would I have dozens of effigies of my own head made if I wasn't like, going to collect the money? Like, in duh. Them? Like, I mean, to be fair, you did have them made before you figured out what to do with them. Yeah. Well, they're designed for use, so... <laughs> Limited amount of uses. I, I never, ever, ever have to look like figure out where to keep a hat. There's just, there's just all over the house. It's put the hat <laughs> right, right on there. Right, right. Doesn't stretch it out. It's already yeah. perfectly the right size. They are, they are kind of hard to store with the twelve foot poles. Yeah, well, on the back yeah. end of them, but you can use them to like get stuff off the roof sometimes. Yeah, just scoop up the squirrels <laughs> into, <laughs> into my your head. own head. <laughs> it's very metaphorical. Pat, before we get started this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Oh, yeah. Bonus content. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we do a Don Criterion film over there every month, and supporters get to vote on what it's going to be. So just $1 gets you that vote, gets you access to all the back catalog of those bonus episodes. There's uh, 56 over there right now. And it's a lot. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. It's non-criterion films, as I said, and yeah, you know, we've we've been on. What did we watch? We've been watching a lot of. Um, we had a good run of very ideologically in our wheelhouse films. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, then I got I got away from that. Last and, then, week. and then you just decided, uh, uh, which was it was a it was a fun break. Decided to give me something I watch with the kids, and we watched. Uh, yeah. Uh, Shailen Soccer. Hustle. No, no, not Shailen Soccer. We, we watched Kung, Kung Fu Hustle. Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, yeah. And it was amazing. My children are still talking about it a week later. Excellent. They regularly so bring up things that happened in the movie. And they do it in the most adorable <laughs> way that children always do. That It implies that maybe I didn't see the thing. Yeah. And which is very cute. It's like, did you, did you, you know, that, it like, just, they'll just bring up jokes like, Daddy, did you like? Do you remember how this thing happened? I'm like, I do. It's very funny. You're right. Yes. You're right to bring it up. <laughs> it didn't. It, you are right. It is very funny. Oh, it was uh, so much fun. But yeah, we have we have fun over there, and we also, you know, we get to. Since I'm it, on the main podcast, we're just moving through a list, and we have no. Uh, no ability to change that list because of the choices we've made and how we are approaching it. So it is nice. The boulder to have will a never break ever for... ever make it to the top of this right. hill ever. Right, right. But it's nice to have uh, just every so often you get to draw your own picture on the boulder and look at that for a minute. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, maybe it's at the back of and, a cave. Know, I think we're mixing our metaphors up here. I, I don't. You know, it's fine. It's all Greek to me. Yeah, for just a dollar a month, you get uh, you get to vote, you get to listen to those episodes, and you get to help keep us going. For a little above that, for folks who want to help us keep going uh, and can afford to give us a little more money, and we greatly appreciate it, 
uh, $5 mark, we'd like to thank those people on air. So thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Eric Coronado, Chris Otto, Andrew Jarrett, and Stephen Goldmeyer. Thank you very much. A bit above that. Yeah, thank you so much. A bit above that, we do something that is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art once a month based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note, mail that off. So if you love bespoke art and getting mail, and who's not excited when you get a postcard in the mailbox? I frankly, um, uh, like a small child, I long for mail to come for me. And I get very excited always, when it comes. Always. And then I often open it and realize I do not want this. <laughs> this is the way it works. Well, this is, this is the benefit of a postcard is that there's no... You don't have to open it, so there's no excitement than disappointment. Uh, I think you, I and, think you underestimate how excited I can get in the act, in the process of flipping a thing over. That's that's fair. That's fair. You're you're a very I, excitable I am, person. I am I am I am child brained at best. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, a little personalized note from me that you can be immediately disappointed by anyway. <laughs> so the roller coaster is just faster. It's really, uh, we, we will the emotional yeah. highs and lows of getting one of our postcards yeah. is really it's it's all we're all over the place. But that is that is for ten dollar and above supporters, and we also like to thank those folks on air. Thank you so much to Jason Westhaver, Nina Bajnak, Patrick Alco, Tracy McGrath, and Adam Speakerman, our thank current all ten dollar and above supporters. Yeah. Um, if you want to check out those postcards without committing to that $10 and above mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion, and you can see all the former postcards on a little bit of a delay just because I want to make sure that our supporters get them first. Uh, but you can buy old postcards there. You can buy them as greeting cards, as stickers, as magnets, uh, occasionally as pins. I haven't put any on a shower curtain yet, but really that is an feel option like every there's time. There's got to be at least one that is shower curtain appropriate. Um, maybe, maybe. I think one of the black and white ones would do really well on a shower curtain. Maybe, if I'm being honest, that could be. That could be. That could be true. I'll, 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 I'll take a look. Uh, we'll see if we can start offering a shower curtain. Um, <laughs> love to, love to have my name on your shower. Thank you so much to those ten dollar above supporters. As I said, you can check out redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion if you want to see that stuff, or support us outside of the Patreon because uh, if you purchase stuff from there, we get that money as well, and we're very grateful for that support. Uh, but if you want to support us more directly, head to patreon.com/lostincriterion and sign up for one of the tiers yes. there. In any case, thank you for listening. Yeah, we appreciate it. We do. This week, we are returning to the fount of long takes that I love, that is Max Ophel's films, mm. uh, with Lola Montes from 1955. This is Ophel's last movie. Uh, he had, apparently, a f at least four other projects in the works when he had a heart attack in early 1955. Um, yeah. Uh, including one that was or, uh, 57 is when he had the heart attack. In any case, um, he had some other projects in the works, uh, including one that was fully scripted and and cast had been hired, but they hadn't uh, moved forward on production yet. Um, learn about that in some of the background material on this. Uh, but yeah, he, I don't know. It, it, every movie of his that we've seen, I've loved. Uh, it's been yeah. a little bit, right? So we did. Yeah, like, I, and I like in the bonus material for this one, they were bringing up movies. I'm like, I wish I really wish I could remember better 
<laughs> right, right, like, right. The things you're talking about, like, uh, movie are jogging memories, but not to the extent that I can, like, fully call them to mind. And it yeah, really yeah. sucks. We did a box set of his work with La Ronde, La Placier, and the Earrings of Madame Day, I believe. Yeah. Um, that was a few months ago now. Uh, I'd probably be, if I actually look it up and find it's out like it was four years ago. Year, right? Uh, let's find out. Like, La Ronde, I remember. Because La Ronde's premise is so... Uh, it's was... so uniquely... It's like the... It, I think we described it if, as like 1900s romantic uh, slackers or something like that. Yeah, basically, basically, because yeah, yeah. it was one I really, sort I really of one liked story. The premise of the way it works through yeah. the through the path. Yeah, um, and La Placier was a little more uh, uh, episodic, but, right, but sort of similar right. um, about the the brothel that was surprisingly closed, throwing throwing the business class right. of the city oh, into yeah, disarray. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Because the uh, the women of the house had, had gone to the country for the weekend. Um, and then the earrings of Madame Day, which was the uh, the romance that starred uh, DeSica um, in, in one of... <laughs> I don't know. Have we seen more... Jessica starring roles than Jessica acting or Jessica directing yet. I don't. I think we're I pretty think evenly so. paced, actually. Really? But, think so? Yeah. Um, maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe his directing, as far as the Criterion Collection has presented us, maybe his directing does uh, hedge it out a little bit more. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, we did that box set. Um, let's see. They were spying four forty three, four forty four, and four forty five. So it wasn't. It was a little over a year ago. I mean, yeah, yeah, well, exactly. It's right out a year, I guess, right? Yeah, thereabouts. So, so yeah, not too, not too long ago, but uh, yeah, we long absolutely loved them. Sort of forgot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure watching those, uh, watching the 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 bonus features on here was just enough to make you think, oh, I wish I could re- watch that movie again. <laughs> exactly. That that is really what happened, and also like you combine it with the fact that. Um, that was a TV show, a a yeah, black yeah. and white, pretty pretty poorly like captured TV show. So the result was like I was like, this is all very very familiar. I wish I could see it the way I remember seeing it, and then that would probably jog my memory, and I'd actually be able to remember exactly yeah. what happened. But yeah, the thing about seeing uh, clips from this movie, La Montes, on that black and white television show, is that. That's probably closer to how most people saw this movie for at least a decade um, or more. Uh, just because the the initial audience did not react well to this film. Uh, and the producers, I think particularly after, uh, after Ophel's death, the producers uh, recut it. Cut a bunch of stuff out. Well, I don't know. The description I saw seemed to be that, like, he was definitely... It seemed like he was alive when they did it, and it made him... <laughs> Caused his heart ins- attack? Like, didn't, like uh, not actually, but, like, kind of, like, drove him to the brink because, like, right. they the, uh, ruined his vision. The... Yeah, all of that happened during 1956, so it was before his death. Uh, and it was the end of 56 that the, the second version had come out. Uh, but it wasn't until 1968 that producer Pierre Bromberger uh, got the rights to the movie and started trying to uh, restore it to the director's original vision. 
which is hard to do because you know sometimes things just get lost, right? Well, and you can see in the one we watched where there's very clearly scenes that like the film stock just wasn't as good, right? right where there's right, like right. weird <laughs> fading on the edges, and it's like, oh, that must have been one that somebody had to basically drag like dig out of a trash can. Yeah, to yeah. To, to to use. And s- sometimes I think that it might also be an Ophel's choice to sort of fade on it the could edges. Be, I, but, but this one, I'm specifically thinking about when she's hanging out with, um, what's his name, the Bavarian king. Ludwig, yeah. There's like just a few scenes where he's walking are, or moving around, and you're like, oh, that must be like, that must have been something that was cut yeah. and re-put. It, it just looks yeah. wrong. It doesn't match the sort of artistic style. Like, it matches right. the style, but it, it it's wrong. It's not, I don't think it's a, I don't think it was a, a choice. Yeah. There are times in that sequence where it is still the cinescope length, you know, width, uh, but has those fuzzy edges. And then yeah. there are times where it's actually taken down to almost a 4-3 yes, with still yeah. those and fuzzy so I edges. Think that whatever restoration happened, I don't know if it was the 58 or the one that, um, whatever the, the French uh, yeah. film group that did the restoration, I don't know who did it, but somebody clearly had to get get less than ideal footage yeah. to well, make before, some of those scenes happen. Before Bromberger finished a restoration of this for whatever, I'm sure it was financial reasons, but also logistical reasons of tracking down the stuff, uh, he himself died and his daughter picked up the work. Um, and that version, you know, again, he bought the rights in 68. Uh, that fully restored version did not come out until 2008. Uh, right. Pr- premiered at Cannes, um, and that is the version that we watch. Um, right. And this, I think this Criterion release was uh, January or February 2010, so very early 2010, right. very quick quick turnaround on its release. Um, the fascinating thing I, the, the thing I think about is the, like, the sort of techniques that, we ha- that are available to do those sorts of restoration have progressed even so much since like 2008. I wonder if the next time somebody gets a crack at it, if basically those artifacts will just be gone. Yeah. Cause you can, there's, I mean, there's probably a really decent chance you could sort of like with modern sort of like AI and stuff, like it would be kind of fake, but you could almost interpolate the data that's missing and just nobody would ever notice that it's gone. Well, cause it's just edge stuff, right? It's just like, yeah. what was the thing that was, well, what I mean though is like, he's just, it's mostly what it is, is it's the King walking across the scene, right? He's mid, fr- he's in the middle of the frame. And so, like, everything that's missing is the edges that would have... The things that are on the edges would have been in in the lens moments before. You know what I mean? It, it'd yeah, just be interesting to are, see what, what people can do. I don't know. When it particularly... When it gets... When the frame gets thinner on those bits and sort of irises in, I really feel like it's Ophul's, like, referencing silent movie stuff. It might but the be, fact but I don't. That, that I don't doesn't think happen suspect... in any other sequence or any right. other flashback. And my thought about that is... is, I don't know that he could do that with film stock. Yeah, like that's could fair. really pull that off. Like right. that's a thing you could do in digital filmmaking because you can mess around with frame width and stuff just all willy nilly. And nobody... so, do you think? But like, do you think when it pops down to four three that that's because they could only recover it from a TV print or something like that? Maybe. Or 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 maybe a cut, or there was a four by three release somewhere yeah. on Earth that like they that's what they had. I mean, who knows? But like, it wouldn't be terribly surprising to me if like, oh, we found it on a cut that was mailed to like an American 
yeah. producer or something that had in a closet and like you know it was cut down to like close to four by three to show on like the kinds of movie screens that producer had you know that uh distributor had or something you know what i mean Cra- crazy shit happens man like they find shit in closets and stuff all the time who knows i'm just thinking like it, it, it's possible that was an artistic choice but i don't know how unless like it's actually still a wide frame and then they just like blacked out the edges i don't know how you would even do that in a physical film release i don't know yeah yeah i don't know um it's weird i don't know it's it's like it's like they're talking about like five minutes of lost footage and stuff it's like boy that feels like that could have been part of that lost footage for sure yeah yeah, there's not. It's it's actually surprising given given how long it took to restore and the amount of work it seems was put into restoring this, that none of the bonus features are really about the restoration. Is kind of surprising. No, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, um, I don't. We don't get a lot of stuff about sort of the technical elements of filmmaking in Criterion very often. I think to to its detriment, if I had to honestly say so. Like, Criterion does a lot of fucking work. Or, or the companies that are associated with it, they release the then final product, do a lot of fucking work on a lot of different films, and we don't get a lot of insight into what exactly that involves through... And I feel like that's a that's a that's almost an oversight well, on Criterion's it, part. It's interesting because when they do give us technical aspects, it's always stuff that we're not interested in. And there was a lot of... Uh, with the Ophuls box set, there was a lot of... like They talked to the set designer on each. Right, on right, each. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember um, that. Yeah, uh, or Whereas I think in, of... the, in this one they talked about this one, the one that was from like French television. They talked to set people who talked more in detail about what that meant in terms of like practical camera work and how fucked up it was. Yeah, which like I feel like the one we talked to, the ones that came with the box set, didn't get into like how Ophul's sort of weird obsessions resulted in everybody having a lot more work to do. Right, right, right. This <laughs> like, one, whereas this one was like very brunt about it. It's like, oh yeah. yeah, that made it really hard. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that that is from a 1965 television French television program uh, means that we could have had a- access to that stuff earlier. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And maybe it's kind of weird that the box set didn't have like the first half of that TV show or something. Um, yeah, I think about just last week we had the. Uh, or no, two weeks ago with Paris, Texas, we had that that documentary on the bonus feature that was the Road to Ter- Paris, Texas, right, that yeah. talked about talked about a bunch of films that we won't see until much later. This does the opposite and waited yeah. until that final release to give us uh, a bonus feature that well, that really contextualizes everything quite differently. Uh, yeah, at least on a technical for sure. End. Yeah, and and really makes me also. I have to wonder why that box that didn't just include this too. I mean, if I'm being totally honest, like yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's probably it's all it's always rights. It's it's always rights, but like that box set. I mean, like if if you tossed this in, it would have felt fine. <laughs> like given, it would have felt good. Given timing of release, it's possible. I think. Oh, you know, I'm I'm speculating on on when that box set would have come out, but I bet that box set was coordinated to release at the same time that this restoration premiered. Maybe. And then Criterion got the rights to to put out, and possibly the same deal, uh, got the rights to put out this restoration, but, but wasn't able to until, like I said, early 2010. What weirds me out is, 
Lola Montez has a Laserdisc release, which would mean it wasn't the version we watched. Yeah, I wonder what because it I wonder what predated was Laser. Like this is post Laserdisc, but they clearly put a version out, which is fascinating to me. That that like Criterion has had access to some form of this movie for a long time. But it wasn't this version. I, yeah, I wonder what. I what wonder was. what that was. Yeah, wonder what like, that what was. What cut was that? Uh, well, we'll never know, and probably for no. the best that we'll never know. <laughs> oh, oh, you doubt me? I'm buying my laserdisc pr- player right now. Oh, good luck. You're you live in a country where you, that's probably not that difficult. So <laughs> you know, actually, though, when I was in call when we were in college, I oh, I was right on the cusp of buying a laserdisc player. Yeah, because that was the only way you could, and it still is one of the only ways you can get a. A un like fucked with copy of uh, Star Wars. Oh yes, of course. Uh, is the Laserdisc release was the is the highest quality unfucked with version, and like I ended up not doing it, but like they were only like twenty bucks on eBay when we were in college. Right, right. I don't right, even. Right. I wonder if they got more expensive just because like they're getting more and more rare. Yeah, well, I think they were still being manufactured in Japan while we were in college. Yeah, maybe. So. So you might everybody who's selling them was selling them used. They were like, "Oh, I've yeah. got this laserdisc player. Would you like a laserdisc player and all of my laserdiscs? How does twenty five dollars sound? <laughs> Boy, you really <laughs> right. want to get right. one of this, don't you? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, talking about that bonus feature of of everyone complaining, like they talked to the cinematographer going <laughs> it's through so much complaining. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Obviously, that that film, uh, that television episode is after Ophuls has passed, and like everyone's willing to, to very, talk very candidly about him at that point. Um, and we get more more of that with one of the other bonus features, which is uh, Max by Marcel, I think is what it was called. But it's uh, Marcel Ophuls, Max's son, uh, who is also in the the French television episode because he was his assistant at the time of filming. Uh, but uh, but Max did a documentary in 2008, 2009 uh, about, or Marcel did the documentary about his dad and about the the creation of this movie particularly and talked to a lot of the same people, you know, actors and stars and, and the camera, uh, the cinematographer and, and set designers who were still around. Um, but yeah, just to, to, hear, <laughs> to hear the cinematographer talk about uh, the former movies, you know, Le Ronde and, and Le Placier, particularly about how they how they shot those and like how uh, how O'Fool's insistence on the tracking shots um, were just completely outside of this guy's wheelhouse. And it's like that's not and and you know where he tell well, you get actively Im- telling him that this is a bad idea. Like <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: is like you get the impression like the way, and I I do not know. I don't know enough about you know, cinema history or anything, you get the impression from that guy that, like, it wasn't just, like, out of this guy's wheels house, but it was also kind of like, are you mad? Like, what, yeah. what, you want me to do what? Like, like as yeah. though, like, O'Fools was actively sort of inventing, some, like, new new cinematography. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and he I talks don't know if that's true, but that's what it feels like. He talks particularly about a sequence, I believe it was in La Ronde, where we're tracking a couple as they walk, like, through a forest, like, through a garden. And half the time you can't even see them right? because they're behind the trees. Like the can, there's a line of trees between the camera and this couple. Uh, and and he's talking about, oh, I I tried to focus on their face as best I could as we moved between the trees. And 
that clearly wasn't what O'Fools wanted, right? You know, he just wanted the movement. He wanted to track the right. movement, not necessarily the 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 actors and actresses himself. And that's really you know something we get in this movie is is that tracking of movement so much. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, then well, he compares. I mean, it, it seems like O'Fools was actively is. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but I can't really remember. It. Is actively was actively sort of obsessed with the idea of like on-screen movement equaling out to like movement in story movement in character arc and things like that like obviously that's a thing that we kind of take for granted as a as a sort of you know filmmaking philosophy but now but i don't it really seems like it was his like it yeah he was obsessed with it like it's like the thing like yelling at a person because they tried to the editor because he tried to cut from a tracking shot yeah it's like i'll break your fingers or yeah. whatever it was. And I wonder, yeah, there is, there's that scene, I think, in Le Placier that, that we both really loved where characters go up some this long flight of stairs and then we, like, track them as they walk down a hallway at the top of the stairs, but we're still at the foot of the stairs. So we're moving through the lobby as they come down another set of stairs. But, but the camera, like, you know, it's... So we're we're tracking the movement of characters we can't see, completely can't see. Uh, yeah, and there's a little less of that going on in the Lamontes, but it is interesting that uh, I think the the Criterion essay uh, uh, brings this up. Um, but it is interesting that that for all the camera movement, our main character does not move a lot. <laughs> there are there are times oh, where she one, has yes, bursts of movement, true, yeah. right? Uh, I would I would say that like this is definitely the the one with the least active main character that we have seen like right, just right. in terms of like what they're and it's but 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 in that sense right like that works to O'Fool's advantage here because it conveys the idea that the story you still get the movement that tells you about the story progressing and things are moving forward but it kind of puts her in a position where it really conveys the idea that like this is sort of a thing that is being done to her rather than a right. thing that she she really she has agency but she doesn't really i mean like she does in the sense that she chose to sort of chose to join this circus but like it's kind of out of desperation um and also you combine it with the fact that like she doesn't seem to be pleased by it the way right, this right like it's not a, this is not a job she enjoys the way she clearly enjoyed the way she lived her life before this right and now that the sort of stationary like behavior like tracks with that right yeah. she's not happy yeah now this is a biopic of a real person lola montez the um, circus is not real though which the is circus is not real right right her end of life in this movie is completely she did die young she died at 39 um but she died living in new york not working right. for a circus I, yeah. in new orleans and she never worked for a circus anyway oh is it wait was the circus supposed to be in New Orleans? I missed that. Yeah, 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 it was. That's I, why. I missed that part. I, I I, don't know that it's even, like, established in film. Um, I think there might be a New Orleans. I, I can't even remember. I, It is definitely meant to be America. But I think because the first shot of people we get as we pan down from the top of the circus tent is the conductor dressed as Uncle Sam conducting a bunch of guys in blackface and that's pretty much definitely supposed to be America. <laughs> um, yeah, but, I, I somehow missed that. I didn't I but, didn't pick up on that. But yeah. Uh 
but I think I think I don't know if it's actually stated in film that it's in New Orleans. Uh, I think that's probably something I picked up from the bonus materials of people talking. But in any case, um, Lola Montes was born in Ireland uh, and then adopted the Spanish name and adopted um, adopted that whole personality as a mask, right? But then was able to use that and use her sexuality to gain autonomy in a time where that was not easy um, for a woman uh, at all, if borderline impossible, uh, really. Um, and, you know, she she does it in the same way we talk about some uh, mid-century actresses, uh, you know, using, using her sexuality uh, sort of to let people believe that they're using her as she's using them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and she she definitely seems to have lived a very fascinating life, uh, but a life of myth. And I think Ophuls was not the first director attached to this. And when he came on, he basically recreated the script from scratch, uh, even though uh, someone else does get credited with the screenplay, I think, in the opening credits, the guy who originally wrote the other screenplay. Uh, but... Uh, but he basically recreated everything from scratch, and I think he has kind of an antagonistic relationship to Lola Montes uh, historically, it's, it's or at least kind of to hard to tell. Yeah, or it's at a least strange one. an antagonistic relationship toward the mythos of Lola Montes and the stories of Lola Montes, which maybe he's more connected to. You know, she's not she's not someone of popular myth to us today, right? Um, but she clearly was someone whose whose story. I mean, if you look at film adaptations of her life story, there's like a dozen of them before this. Uh, right. There's okay. there's tons and tons. Um, so you know, it's a it's something that that lived in popular consciousness prior to O'Fool's making this right. movie. Uh, well, so what what brings me to mind? What the reason I have waffled back and forth on this since watching it? Like I've I've kind of can't get it out of my head whether or not he like what O'Fools fully wants to convey with this there's very clearly a message here uh but i don't think it's like necessarily chastising i don't think it's it's judgmental in that way it might be judgmental in the idea of like because he he the the um the special talks about how his his distaste for the idea of gossip and the idea yes. of of celebrity gossip, which we want, we kind of like to pretend exists only now, but has been around for forever. Um, and so, like, and certainly, you know, is a is, is, has a long history in like French newspaper writing and stuff, right? Um, he seems to m- m- want to focus primarily on that, and so I think to a certain extent, like making her adopting a kind of antagonistic relationship with her where he tries to demythize a mythical fi- figure that ha- became mythical sort of through the the process of cele- like essentially celebrity gossip yeah i think that process maybe to a certain extent takes on an antagonistic beat to it yeah i think i think ophel's antagonism i think ophel's antagonism 
is not directed at Montez, but is directed at the uh, the circus that is built around Montez. Uh, for sure. And he uses yeah, I mean, the he uses a literal circus within yeah. within the film here as a as a metaphor for the very concept of a biopic, really, right? Right. <laughs> that yeah. it's yeah, yeah. And well, it's certainly a biopic about a person who everybody only knows about through the process of like a right. gossip, right? Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, we get we get the for every question asked, we get the uh the ringmaster doing a a quick answer that that just builds the intrigue or 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 plays to the expectations of, or, of yeah, the audience or, yeah right? or even says we'll get to that kind of yeah like, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you got to stay to the end of the show for that and then we we flip that with all the all the flashbacks we see are are usually in lola's head Sometimes it is her telling her story actively to the audience, but it's usually just in her head and it's her thinking. And that's an exploration of like memory and how memory also isn't truth. Right. 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 And that's, that's where, uh, where the same adult actress playing 16 year old Loa Montez in pigtails is, is right. a commentary on memory to me that I really right. think no, is actively I agree something because he's when doing. You, because fascinatingly enough, the stage show that they are in employs a child employs to play a child, a child and a teenager <laughs> to play her yeah. at various ages. But it's just the actor, the actual. But for the flashbacks, it is all just the actual actress playing it. Uh, Carol, uh, Caroline. Oh crap! Uh, what's her name? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. her, what's the actress's name? But yes. <laughs> So there's a really fascinating uh, Mar- uh, Martine Carroll. That's what. There it is. you go. Yes. There's a fascinating sort of dichotomy there for sure. That that is has to be on purpose. There's no way you would not you would do that otherwise, right? Yeah. And Martine Carroll was again someone who sort of got thrust on Ophel's when he took over the production, um, and she's she's like an Italian matinee star, a blonde bombshell. In, in a time where there was a new blonde bombshell every couple of years. So she was 1956's well, blonde bombshell. Right, and what's fascinating about it is, to me, is that like he clearly resented that. Right. Um, right. Like, well, first, off, he, first off, they dyed her hair or put her in a wig, yeah. right? So, well, I mean, to, to, be, to be fair, yeah, because, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a character, right? Right, right, uh, right. But, but like... It does immediately undermine one of the things that makes this person famous, sort of nationally, right? But um, I don't know. It's really interesting because they interview her during that TV show, and she has a lot of positive things to say about him. Right. So it seems that despite his resentment towards the idea of her being sort of foisted upon him, he seems to have done a good job of directing her, and she seems to have. Because like other people rip him, at, kind of like do not they do not like they do not tread lightly on Max Fool's grave in this in this right, documentary. Right, right. Like, so it's like there's no reason why she has to be like congenial about it, except for that, like she seems to have legitimately, yeah, think he did a good job and made her like do a good job in the in yeah. the in the movie. And it's just really fascinating because I, I wonder what that that relationship was is actually like it sounds like he spent a lot of time with her to try to make her play this part the way uh he wanted her to now mind you it's a lot of it's not a lot of action for 
it's a fascinating thing, right? The circus scenes are very are very still right. for her, but the other scenes are full on like real, you know, pretty like pretty wild, like pretty emotive acting, right? Like the, the flashbacks. Uh, Lola Montez gets to be very emotive and and active and a, a very dynamic character. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's yeah, just but, interesting. But at the same time, we never actually see her dance in the flashbacks. Yeah, or more than like half. Well, a second more than a few it, seconds, right? right. But yeah. like, I don't. I think that that is. Oh, I think that's. Yeah. A, I don't think that is to do with. Uh, I mean, I don't know anything about Maritine Carroll's dancing ability. She may be a terrible dancer, but I I could see O'Fools doing that regardless of who he got in there, just because. I think that plays with the idea that what made her special was not the dancing. Well, yes, but I also think there are probably actresses at the time who, if they were cast, he would have shown Maybe. the dancing because they were good dancers. Uh, right. But, I mean, it's hard to say because a fool's is a, is a strange fellow. He's a strange like, guy. You know, like, like who knows what he would have? Like there are, there are directors that we feel comfortable enough commenting on where like, yeah. I can I could almost predict what their version of a movie would look like and be yeah. like. Whereas, like, I'm not sure I could predict what Old Fool's version of this movie would be like if one tiny thing had been different. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like the you Who know, and, and where where we conspicuously do not see the dancing is her entire time in Bohemia. We don't see her audition, and we don't see her little private audition for the king, except from when she tears open her shirt. Uh. And then we cut to this line of uh, of servants retrieving a needle and thread. Well, we do see her like do a tiny. She a does a very, little flourish. Like she a does little, a little like, flourish. A little couple and flourishes nothing else. and then yeah. it's over. Like yeah, maybe she can't dance. I don't know. But like I, in the end, I don't think that it has a legitimately detrimental effect. Right, right. I mean, obviously you see other versions of this story and there's a lot of dancing in them. Yeah. I, and if O'Fools knows that every other version of this has a lot of dancing, then it's also quite possible he was even just like, no, you're not dancing. There'll right. be no dancing in my, there'll be no dancing in my Lola Montez movie. Thank you very much. Yeah. I don't know. You know, we do get like one like action scene of her when she confronts, uh, that one scene, I think it's it's early in Europe, before before we go to Bohemia, um, where she's uh, been having an affair with like the the conductor of the of the music group she's dancing for, and it's like the outdoor scene, and she storms through the crowd to give uh, to oh, give the right, jewelry right. he's given to her back to his wife. Um, yeah, 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 because he she didn't know he was married. I mean, there's she rides so, a horse. I mean, there's some action. Yeah, she rides the, a horse right, right, pretty right, right, aggressively. Right. I mean, yeah, there 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 are times where she has very aggressive movement, right? Um, prominent movement, and then there are times where you might expect movement where we don't get movement, like right, like most of the sequence with the king. Um, at Although, least in I mean, that you first know, we get this sort of thing yeah. is that like I I don't know I feel like. With with O'Fool's sort of attention to movement as a as a hallmark of like his style, I wonder if that has to do with trying to convey like Lola doesn't necessarily like as far as the as far as Max O'Fool's version of this story, she doesn't want to move when she gets with the king. Right. She is legitimately actually happy. Yeah. And settled and comfortable. 
And so she comes to a kind of a halt, right? Like a character that we've seen basically move fairly aggressively and actively throughout the movie, about throughout her flashbacks. I mean, she's always sort of chasing after things in the flashbacks, right? Like she's in the yeah. carriage, the carriage is always moving. She's constantly in motion in the flashbacks until we get to the king, where it seems like it's meant to sort of convey to us that, like, oh, no, she's fine with standing still here, and she moves when she's forced to move instead of when she wants to move. Right, right, right. It's, I don't know, O'Fool's view of Montez is almost like she's a prisoner of her own autonomy in a lot of ways, or yeah. or, or a prisoner well, of forces. Well, I think she's a prisoner of the, the thing that makes her, gives her powers the thing that right also sort of haunts her right right like she is empowered in many ways by this gossip system that like makes her bigger than life that makes yeah the men she interacts with want to interact with her like we talked about sexuality but a lot of it also comes from the idea of like the sort of cachet that comes with spending time with her right right like you get you get famous by being around her yeah. because she carries fame with her like in a handbag but that fame comes from gossip and 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 this sort of like cele- like this kind of celebrity culture, which means that that also like haunts her throughout the movie, right? It yeah. makes her a prisoner, and it eventually entraps her completely in the circus, right? And eventually, the circus is the representation of that fully, like, devouring her. It's really interesting that she in the movie has an affair with, and in reality, at least had an artistic relationship with uh, Franz Liszt then. Because Lissomania is like the first example people talk about for for that real celebrity uh, gossip culture blowing up and people becoming obsessed with a public celebrity. Right. Uh, whereas it seems like that sort of thing was simultaneously happening with Montez and she comes up much less often in those conversations. Consider, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, considering really, I've never I, really heard a... of her before this movie. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, neither did I. I and, and, I don't know, I I think O'Fools did actually put a lot of thought into this movie. Yeah. It I feel like it could be you could watch it though and you could feel like this is just I feel like there's a world where you could very easily watch this movie and walk away from it feeling like it's sort of empty. Yeah. But I feel like an incredible amount of consideration went into it. Um and I think playing with that ga- gossip culture is is really uh, sort of a hallmark. I I was thinking about like um her like it even plays with the idea that like true to true to life anyway that like gossip is what continues to propel her right through 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 event after event after event it allows her to kind of keep picking up and building more and more momentum right like she doesn't have to stop because she has this sort of fuel behind her right and then when she and and people don't seem to have turned on her at least as far as what fools is concerned until she doesn't burn up that momentum anymore right when she comes to a halt is when everybody decides that it's inappropriate right had she sort of just sort of passed through bavaria spent like a week or two with the king it seems like it would have just been part of the the tale right but like that everybody reads in the magazine and it's just oh yeah her most recent person she spent time with was the the king of bavaria well it just goes into the into her like legend right but as soon as she stops and doesn't use that like is not propelled by that anymore it seems to like turn against her right like as soon as she stopped feeding off of that it turns against her yeah um politically montez in bavaria is 
interesting, not just in the film, but but historically, very much. And the film does does a good job representing that. She, you know, she gets in with the king and is his favored courtesan or whatever the terminology they would have actually used. But uh, you know, she gets a castle out of the deal. She gets a she gets a, 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 a what countess, uh, <laughs> right? She gets a, a a noble title out of the deal. Um, but then I was really fascinated to learn that the the very first revolts of eighteen forty eight German uh, Germany were aristocracy and the church uh, rabble rousing against Montez's favored status because she wasn't Catholic. She had encouraged the king to uh, to. Uh, appoint a Protestant prime minister, uh, which got a lot of a lot of uh, heat from the church. Uh, she's you know she she's just some rando um, uh, faux faux Spanish Irish woman. Um, uh, got a lot of heat from from the aristocracy for that, and of course there's a lot of other things politically boiling over. And the rest of the 1848 uh, revolts in Germany were from a much much more prominent leftist perspective but in bavaria itself the uh the portrayal of the the student revolt in bavaria here is pretty realistic to to history too that the students viewed many of the students at least viewed montez as a symbol of freedom uh right well, that's, as a symbol that, that of possibility you see how you would do that right like, yeah there's a reason why I don't think I, there's a reason why the gossip machine didn't just destroy her whole cloth right, or right much earlier on right is that like she probably I would imagine to a certain extent when people are reading that gossip as sort of the circus performer the circus guy talks about he, the circus guy says it in sort of a derogatory way to a certain extent about like what like women dream of but it's what people dream of right, right. like the ability to go where they want to go and do what they want to do and not have to really give a shit about like and the smoke rules, what they want right? to smoke. Like, yeah. Well, uh, like, you know what I mean? She represents, like, it's very easy to imagine how if you are reading this and you're kind of stuck in some position, how, like, it's it's a classic thing, right? Like, we, we she's not the version that a lot of us read now or get familiar with now, but that idea of, like, oh, I could just, like, go. I could just, like, go, right? And, yeah. and people get become, that's very, people get very enamored with that that notion, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just very interesting to find out that that is sort of the very the that she was so heavily involved with the forty eighters. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or as far as you know, the political ideology of why all of that was happening is is sort of and you know, and I think a lot about the forty eighters because so many of them ended up in America and ended up uh, you know. Active, active communists, card-carrying communists who were fighting for the Union Army during the Civil War because of right. the results of the forty-eight re- uh, failed revolutions in Germany. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just it's a very interesting time in history to me, and to find out she's a weirdly prominent figure within <laughs> within that time period. Is, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, kind of I think I think it's very exciting, right? Like I mean, this is not necessarily exactly a, a historical biopic or anything right, like right, that. Right, right, right. Like, but like, it's I don't know. That's a very exciting. It's like one of those things where like, 
sometimes this this podcast introduces us to like bits and pieces of facts about history that you're just like that's not what we're here for per se but like it's like wow i had no idea that that it makes me feel like uh what was the what's the name of that uh oh what's the name of that that historian who does he was connections PBS. yeah connections i can't remember his yeah. name now uh james burke i, have I think the, yeah i have the box set and i can't remember the his name yeah, but uh, yeah, no, it just it feels like something like that where you're like, oh yeah, there's just all these weird little connections in in the world that sort of make things work, and including but not limited to the connections of of this famous from Irish dancer, yeah, possibly being the cause, some of the cause of a, of a major revolution or a major attempted revolution, I should say. There is a through line. Of a random Irish woman deciding to get out of poverty by betray- pretending to be a Spanish dancer to the Union winning the Civil War that you exactly. can actually <laughs> draw. That's wild. That is a, yeah. it, is, it is both true and wild. Right? Yeah. And I, that's, uh, that stuff's always amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Um, the ringleaders, the ringmaster's relationship to Lola and the way he handles her story uh, really reminded me of. Uh, Orson Welles in F for Fake talking about Oya Coder's relationship with Picasso. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the entire, uh, that that bit of F for Fake where at the end, uh, Welles says, now we promised to tell you the truth for an hour and for the last 20 minutes, <laughs> that hour expired 20 minutes ago or whatever. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, yeah, so I think I think there's probably, given Welles' love for, for film, I'm sure there is a... Uh, an inspiration there uh, that maybe wouldn't have come up previously, <laughs> but right. Uh, but yeah, just you know, the O'Fools here is definitely interested in commentary on truth, right? Right, for uh, sure. Yeah, even even as he's making what is kind of just a big bombastic film, and the bombasticness of it is also the commentary on truth. Like, this whole circus well, thing. Absolutely. This is an insane circus, period. Uh, I like... Right, yeah, and that's, and that's the thing, right? Is that, like, you inherently as an audience member know that the circus has to not be part of the real story. Because it doesn't... It just doesn't really... It's the only part of the thing that feels... Like it's not a story, but almost just a set a set piece. It's it's hard to describe, but like you kind of like come to understand as an audience member that like oh yeah, the circus isn't real. Like the circus is not really part of her story. It it's it, <laughs> it in more modern sort of ways of thinking, it reminds me of like one of those TV episodes where the cast gets abducted by some sort of like external force. And puts them into some sort of, like if you're watching like <laughs> yeah, you know, a science, yeah. science fiction yeah. show, where right. like like it's like a Q episode of like of of Star Trek or something, where it's like, oh yeah, this extra dimensional force has pulled you out of your time and space and is now going to review your life in the most like batshit insane po- way possible, right? Like it's good. Yes, we are. Are we going to portray it all as a circus? Why wouldn't we? I'm I'm a super being with superpowers. Like it just has that feel to it of like. Um, of not realness, right? Whereas the rest of it is feels like somebody is telling a real story with exaggerations. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, the thing that kills me is the the way it ends with her risking her life a- again 
and then just ends with the opportunity to touch her for 25 cents or whatever it is, or yeah. for a dollar, I mean. Yeah. yeah. It's really like, I feel like at that point, by the time you get to the last, that last little bit, O'Fools is sort of done even remotely pulling punches and just going right. to like, just tell you point blank how disgusting this whole sort of yeah. system that we exist in is. And, right, right. Right, and O'Fools is like, this not... this is gross. He wants you to go look at this and go, yeah. this is gross. O'Fools is not someone who had negative feelings about uh, prostitution. You know, no, we, have, no. we have prostitutes who are heroes of other O'Fools right. movies we've seen. It, it, right? it is about the people... It is, is about... This is about the people in line, not the yeah. people... Not her. And it's about specifically... The people in line are not representing that kind of relationship. The people in line are representing the sorts of people who read gossip columns. Right, right. Like, and religiously. This, this is about... The commodification and 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 capitalization of sex, right? But but it is not it is not it is not the empowering because in this moment, uh, uh, Lola no longer owns the means of production. She no longer owns right. her own body here. Right. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And and the movie even plays with that. Like I mean, the hand like the touching her hand thing is like obviously the most extreme version of this in the movie. Yeah. Right. It's it's meant to close out on a, on a on a powerful note, but like she's clearly pressured into agreeing to like put the net down. Right. Right. Like she, they, the, she's offered the pretense that she can choose, but there is no real choice there. Right. She can't, she can't actually choose to leave the net up. Right. So like he does play it very significantly with the idea that she does not have free will anymore. She, she does not act freely anymore. Right. It is only the powers around her. And I don't I don't know that he's making an argument that the real historical Lola was always reacting to the powers around her, but she is to the extent that, as you already said, she exists in a society where this is the only way she can exercise power, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Um now it's interesting the actual Montez's end of life as I said, she did. She, I believe, she did die fairly young. But uh, she, uh, sort of after Bavaria, she went on a speaking tour of the U.S. around the same time as Dickens was in the U.S. and she was pulling bigger fees than Dickens was. Yeah, I mean, I could believe <laughs> like, it. Like, because, yeah. like, I mean, the difference what what O'Fools is playing with is that that the real Lola Montez was able to ride the wave of gossip all the way to her death right, right like right, i mean right, right. 39 is very young so like yeah. i mean we who knows like what the world would hold for lola montez if she had made it to 60 or something but she the real lola montez was able to ride that wave for apparently as far as we can tell the duration of her life right but like that for the purposes of oh fools that doesn't help him convey the actual message he wants to convey about the fact that like this thing that she uses for her power also inherently controls her and like diminishes her ability to be who she wants to be. Right. Uh, it both empowers her and also takes all of her power away. And it is a, a, a fucked up system, right? He wants to, dis- he wants to tell you how fucked up the system is. And that's hard to do if you just actually tell the truth all the way to the end, which is, it never, it never actually seems to fail her, right? She's able to use it to continue moving all the way to the end, right? Um, I mean, I mean, there's a, and also, I bet he didn't want to talk about what actually killed her, 
which seems very judgmental in the fact that it was related to syphilis. Right, 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 right. And yeah. I, I, I can see O'Fools in sort of the relationship he has with people being empowered in their sexuality and stuff, not wanting to try to accidentally turn it into a morality play about Lola. Yeah. And and you, as soon as you talk about that, you, it's going to be that, regardless of whether or not that's what you intended or not, right? Um, whereas here, it's just a mysterious ailment that is... She's just she's just been pushed. Her life has pushed her too hard. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. She seems to have. I don't know. She's always. There is. Uh, there is a through line in her in her later life, where it does seem like she's still just using, her position, to. Uh, to let other people think they're using her. Uh, late in life, she arranged to deliver a series of moral lectures in Britain and America right. that were written by Reverend Charles Chauncey Burr. I don't know what Burr would have been doing post-Civil War. No, this is still pre-Civil War because it's 57, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I don't know what he would have been doing like morally with Montez speaking. Uh, you know the dangers of sexual freedom, maybe, but but uh, Burr was a a copperhead. He was a he was a an anti abolitionist preacher in the U.S. at that time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Just like that's all I really know about him. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know where <laughs> where her relationship in there uh, would have. I only know the name because he. He like wrote invectives against uh, Henry Ward Beecher later in life, uh, which you know puts him puts him at odds with even the casual reformist abolitionist. Beecher Beecher yeah. had some some radical ideas and was probably more radical than the average person who called themselves an abolitionist. But uh, well, you know, no one's John Brown except John Brown. So um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so I don't know what she might have been doing, but she's still sort of selling herself and selling selling her uh, selling the people's ideas about her in in giving moral right. lectures, whatever yeah. the moral lectures may be, uh, which is very very interesting. Um, yeah, I feel like unfortunately for somebody with such a sort of interesting life, um, the at least the Wikipedia article is is well insufficient it doesn't is, have a lot of him she is also a person who wore a mask her entire public life right, that's true so it's not well, surprising that like, not a it, lot it, of people it, know but, right but i mean what it mean what i mean is it lacks sort of even towards the end especially like basic factual details that you would be able that in theory would sort of exist regardless of the mask i mean we have like her date of death basically what killed her although it's unsighted uh uh, and like, um, I don't know, like it talks about a little bit about that later life. Like in theory, there's probably more information that could exist about that, like that, those moral lectures, because things were probably at least like printed and stuff. Right. Right. Like, right. There were probably ads. They, just somebody, nobody bothered to yeah. write it down or whatever. So we don't really have that information, despite the fact that it definitely did exist. The information about what the contents of those lectures were exists or existed somewhere. We just don't know what it was. 
maybe because somebody didn't do the nobody's done the research or because it doesn't exist, but somebody at some point that information existed is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Although a lot of uh, honestly a lot of Wikipedia articles I find tend to taper off at the end where like right. everybody loses interesting after the exciting bits and it's right, like Right, 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 right. Like the the Wikipedia article writers seem to have a little bit of a of a problem maintaining interest all the way through through death. Yeah. Uh they tend to like, oh well, we got past all the fun bits, uh, and, and her, uh, yeah, we're not going to talk about what happened after she got boring. Her fun bits do seem to be pretty dang fun. So, <laughs> right, I get it. I'm just saying, yeah. like, you know, like there's tends to be never, a lot of like, oh well, I'm not going to bother researching that part. That part's not ne- fun. Never trapeze artist fun though. That's not. <laughs> that's she never actually did any circus uh, wire work or anything. Um, particularly interesting the the way Ophel's uh, portrays her stunt at the end. Uh, when they lower the safety net, where would the safety net even have been? Like, like the the trick she's actually performing is to fall onto a mattress. <laughs> so, yes. Like, I mean, as far as I can tell, like the idea was it would have been over top of the mattress. Like while she was climbing up, it was like over top of the mattress, and I guess I see. It was apparently very a useless safety net because if she had fallen at any point during the climb, her chances of landing on that safety net would have been pretty minimal, right? Because she would have just fallen down in the place with no safety net. But right, right, I don't right. know. I don't know what the safety net like, was doing, I guess. No, I don't know. I, yeah. Except- I mean, I feel like the safety net falls into the same category as fits into the same universe as Ophul is telling the cameraman he doesn't care if you see the track or yeah. not. Right, right. Where it's like, like it's not real. Like it's sort of like you think it's important, but it's not important. Yeah. Like, we all understand what the safety net means, regardless of whether or not it like, like, visually makes any goddamn sense. Right. Because frankly, the circus makes no sense. Like the whole circus makes no sense, top to bottom. Like, yeah. it, and it's what the, if you went to that show, you'd be like, "What am I watching? Yeah. What the safety <laughs> like, what net? Is this? What the safety net is in the function of the story?" is a moment where we can see she's being openly manipulated by the people right, with power absolutely. over her and she no longer has the power to push back against that. And then and they and they have the 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 gumption the the balls to at the end after that say, well, you know, I he says I'm glad you made it or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, that, right. And it's just like, oh, fuck off. I'm dude. glad you survived like, this incredibly dangerous yeah. thing that I just forced you to do then I'm going in to a more dangerous do it way again tomorrow. Yeah. 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 And we, and we as the audience know that eventually this will kill Lola. Like yeah. this, right. eventually she will not make it through this. Yeah. And as far as the the capitalization on Lola's uh, back here, you know, even the head of the circus is a clown who puts on a suit jacket when he's talking business, right? Right. <laughs> um, and 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 it's... notably for me, mentally, smokes in a place that says no smoking. I just can't. <laughs> my brain. Just, I kept. I kept noticing it. I was like. Man, I don't. I don't know why. That, well, that makes it's him, not even relevant to the point. I'm that making, makes him more making, like, like. That makes him more like Lola, though. She's always smoking in a place where she shouldn't be smoking because women shouldn't be smoking in public. Period. So, well, right. That's all places. Yeah, right. I'm just. I'm just fascinated by like it's his circus. He made the sign. <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. Like, if you were wanted to smoke here, you just didn't have to hang up a sign that said no smoking. I don't. Yeah. Oh, it's just how somehow that got into my head while I was watching, and I couldn't not well, pay attention to it anymore. It's ownership's rules for you, not for me. You know, it's just right. one more, yeah, nobody one more little stick there. from yeah. from Ophel's about that. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. This is a surprisingly anti-capitalistic movie too. If you want to read it that yeah, way, I, I, I don't think we're yeah, really stretching as all. Like... We stretch sometimes to make that sort of reading of things, but I don't, I don't think like we're, we're stretching that much here. One. Yeah. Well, I think I think because and whether or not O'Fool's intended specifically to make it that way or not, hard to say, right? But O'Fool's by digging into the idea of what these sort of gossip-based systems and and these kinds of capitalization on on people themselves have at their heart it's like that thing where like even if he didn't want to you can't not right like there's there's a scene where lola is introduced does want to say that but yeah there's a scene where lola's introduced surrounded by dancing gold coins so like i think i think we're not reading that far beyond his critiques of no i don't i don't think i commoditization my my point was is like you could definitely I you know I feel like those ideas maybe go to a certain extent hand in hand like yeah oh fools to think this way about the way people are treated by like media and the public by and the way they're capitalized upon would have to inherently also have some ideas about the idea of capitalizing on labor in general right like right 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 you can't I, it seems it's hard to imagine arriving at that conclusion and not arriving at the other conclusion at the same time yeah right. Now it now it is then interesting that some of the some of the behind the scenes stories we get about Ophuls is him exercising power in a we're doing it our way. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We're, no. or we're doing it I mean, my they way. Do, they refer to him multiple times as a both a petty tyrant who is also incredibly gentle, which I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of conflicting information. Uh, I mean, at one point, he did imply that he would be okay if one of the actors got hanged to death in a, in right, a scene. Right, right, because he wanted the shot. And then, and then had his, I guess, who was it that, like, the person who then harangued him for it for the rest of the... I think it was the cinematographer, right? but I yeah, could I be wrong I can't remember which person it was. It was, yeah. it was the guy with the beard, and I can't remember which person that was. Yeah. But he talks about literally harassing him for the rest of the, the, sh- the shoot. Yeah. About the idea that he... Is a is a tyrant who would have let a person hang yeah. to death to get yeah. a shot. But he's obviously a complicated individual because all of the like technical guys, the lighting guys we talk to, even the set design people we talk to, just tell us Ophuls told us the vibe he wanted, and yeah, and like, then made his shots around whatever we made, <laughs> right, like, right. Regularly referring to the idea that like it seems to me what the impression I got is that the way Ophuls worked, if I if I had to like take everything into into like compiled all into a final version. It is my impression that Ophuls had a great deal of respect for the people who did a lot of the technical work, like building the sets and things like that, and let them just do what they wanted. And then was a tyrant to cinematographers and his actors to get what he wanted. Once he saw what they made, and he made a decision about what he wanted the thing he was going to make to be yeah. was then pretty intense with the people who had to put what's in his head actually onto film. Right, right. Like, he didn't dream up a set and tell them what to make. He just let them make it, and then he was like, oh, well, now I know what we're going to do, and if you fuck it up, I'm going to... Yes, yes. Like, I'm gonna, you're gonna, never going to hear the end of it. It's like it's really a fascinating... I, it, it would be really fascinating to see if to know if that if that was sort of the workflow it seems like that was the workflow yeah yeah like what do you want the set to look like i don't know what i mean like this like you you figure it out 
Yeah. And then, like, and then, and then, know, we and then to... making the cinematographer lay like an entire day's worth of track to get the yeah. exact shot he wants. Right. And we had talked, you know, with the box set about how, you know, he, he would send all the tech guys home and just him and the actors would be on the set running things while they f- figured everything right. out on that end. Right. Uh, so yeah, you know, he's, he's very personal and he wants, he wants the actors, you know, I think he says, maybe not him, but someone quoting him says at one point that what he wants is, you know, the entire production is in service of the actors and then the actors are in service of him. Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, yeah, I don't know. He sounds like a very fascinating person. Yeah. In the end, I I don't know. I can't get a read on. Like sometimes it's really easy to get a read on directors that we we've, we've seen. We haven't seen a lot of him enough to like really probably get a good read on him. But like also like seems very complicated. Like just seems yeah. like a very complicated person because also those same actors who he that were on one hand refer to him as a tyrant and then on the other hand talk about how like good he was at yeah working with like how good it was to work with him i don't know i i'm also not an actor so i don't know maybe like maybe 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 that's just what it's gotta be i don't know i have no idea he certainly had actors come back for more productions with him so right yeah it's yeah exactly i mean and i suspect that he will be a mystery to us for well, I, I don't I, know that we're I don't ever going to get a, gra- a grip. I don't on think him. we have another one of his movies, and we've watched all of all yeah, of his movies exactly. that people really talk about uh, at this point. I think uh, not certainly by no means all of his movies, though. So if if Criterion, Although, I mean, does... he did apparently make Thaiway movies. I'm looking at his um, filmography, and it's not that long. I mean, right? Like, I mean, it's it's not nothing. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be judgmental or something, but like when when you've spent enough time dealing with uh, sort of filmography of i don't know for example japanese working directors or some of the other people in like yeah. certain types of working film were like oh right 250 films okay okay yeah doing five a year huh i mean he's got like what was this like 20 25 something like that yeah uh, total it looks like uh, at least on on wikipedia listing it which is never a further list but we've seen no 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 we've seen not, his but... last four movies basically uh right so you know there's more of his career we could discover if we wanted to right um he has a whole american period that we haven't seen anything out of that i imagine are not that great but uh well i also wonder if it's one of those situations where like we got we have gotten to see the part where he has enough authority and 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 like respect or whatever to like finally make the things he wants to make the way he wants to make them right because we do encounter that with a lot of directors, right? And he dies; he died relatively young, right? So we do see that with a lot of directors where their early stuff is just like, well, this is what they made me make. Here it is. Yeah. I I love his justification to producers on the price of the film is, remember, we're doing this in French, German, and English with, uh, <laughs> with uh, the same cast doing every take. So, you know, you're really getting three movies for the price. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, which is, I, I don't know, maybe kind of interesting that we get the French version, not not the English language version here. Um, I, I did not, I didn't, I, I heard them describe that in the, in the behind the scenes stuff, and it never really fully, like, clicked into my head until we started talking about it, that, like, 
they legitimately just made the movie three times, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's and usually really back wild. to back. Uh, you know, just same scene over and over again. You know, that's how you'd have to do it because that's where the, you know, you've got the setup. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Peter, Peter Ustinov, who plays the circus master, uh, has has a couple of anecdotes about about that process. And he, he right. says he when it was just him and all the extras uh, in like the, the floor scenes where Lola's not there. Um, he talks about the one scene, I think while she's, while she's about to do the dive with the, with the net being taken away, he talks about doing that scene. Uh, and he wanted to do it in German first because he, German was the hardest for him. So he did it in German and he did it flawlessly one take. And then he did it in French and he did it flawlessly in one take. And then when he went to do it in English, it took him 24 takes to get it right. <laughs> and he's an English actor. Um, <laughs> And then he also has a story about uh, a scene with uh, Martin Carroll, who did not speak German. So he says that uh, her lines were phonetically on cue cards over his shoulder. Uh, and then he would he would say his lines in German and have to signal to her that it was her turn to talk. Uh, <laughs> what, is, what, what movie did we watch? What, which movie was it recently that, like... Uh, what, what? It was oh, one it was, of the really recent ones, one of the uh, from the box set where they had to, like tap the people in the foot to like. You're you're thinking of say the lines. One of the stories out of the Rossellini box set, one of the bonus right. features. Yeah, I don't think it was it particularly one of the movies we watched because I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, it was Ing- Ingrid Bergman telling the story uh, about right. one, of, one of the movies they made together. Yeah, it's one of the uh, ones down in like yeah, one yeah, of a, a different where, movie. Yeah, yeah she didn't right. she didn't speak Italian. None of the Italians spoke English, uh, and. Rossellini's process was to overdub all the dialogue anyway, basically. So, right. so uh, Rossellini had set up a system where he had strings tied around their feet, like inside their, like around their toes, inside their shoes, and he'd pull, literally pull the string when it was their turn to talk, so they could start making mouth movements to be overdubbed later. Right. Uh, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Imagine. I think about. Take a moment and think about how this movie. And those Rossellini films couldn't be more different from each other in right. every possible capacity. It's a really right. fascinating thing to think about that we're watching them so close. Like, yeah, right? even just bringing it up, it's like, wow, those are not borderline, not even the same, right? Like, same form of art, right? Like, just even though as some of some of the stuff I've seen talks about Martine Carroll as if Ophuls is approaching her as a non-actor, <laughs> like. Like using her as a blank slate, yeah, you know. Uh, well, even her comments sort of imply that, like, she also knows that this is not a role that, like, really fits her. Like, she right. talks about it in right. her part where she's like, "This didn't really feel like my kind of role or whatever." I forget exactly what she says, and Ophuls knew that too. And it's like, oh boy, so everybody involved knows that this is probably not the best part for this actor which is a fascinating thing to think about that like everybody's walking in going okay well we're gonna make the best of this one uh it turns out good i mean it turns out great really yeah yeah it it really is it is beautiful and it it really does seem i'm surprised i okay given given what i've read about how the initial audience reacted I'm not completely surprised because it was a lot of, I don't know, even, even in 1958, I think this movie is too, uh, too sympathetic to Lola Montez 
for for an audience who knew Lola Monta, <laughs> who yeah, wide audience, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but but there is one one little story about uh, a line that had people completely blow up in the theater uh, that that is lost uh, was cut and now it's lost was uh, Lola young Lola in a flashback uh, proclaiming herself to be sixteen years old and that the idea of this thirty five year old Italian actress in pigtails uh, claiming to be sixteen just completely took the audience entirely out to, um, to the point where, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. They, yeah, they can, exploded can, and it I got cut. Uh, but, but also, you know, this isn't what we're seeing here really is a culmination of at least the last, you know, the three other Ophuls movies we've seen, which were the three yeah. he made before this. This is in line with that very much. No, I agree. Yeah, completely. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah I mean, it feels, it, it is interesting that this is his last film. It is interesting from the standpoint that like he dies, he died young enough that like it wouldn't necessarily have been his last film, right? For a lot yeah. of directors, there would have been a lot more films, but like, yeah, you see, the ideas expressed in the other ones kind of come to a head and like the, the style come to a head. And it's like, I wonder what further O'Fool's films would have been like, because he's already sort of hit like a hit his stride, right? Like this is, this is the thing he makes. Right. And, and this is so very good. that it's like, okay, well like what happens next? Right. And the answer obviously in real life is nothing, but um, still like I, I, one has to wonder, right? Well, I also, they bring this up in the uh, in the Wikipedia as a sort of a side note, but the fact that the the, the um, ringleader, the ringmaster, still carries a whip, is really a fascinating look into O'Fool's view on how the ringmaster represents things, right? Because like, there's no animals in the movie, right? There's no, there's nothing to like, there's nothing that would need whipping, right? Uh. Yeah, and just yet, uh, the ringmaster carries the tools of a ringmaster who has to like keep lions at bay or something, right? right like it's right. fascinating wow. that uh, you know. Well, it's also uh, you know we don't get a lot of establishment on it, but it is also a uh, pre-Civil War American circus that is employing a lot of people in blackface. Uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, I mean, I, that's definitely so, part of it, but I, so this, the I minstrelness wonder, of it, there's, there's, there's sort of a part of it to there where, right. You know, I'm sure that that plays a part of it. It's just, a, it, you know, thinking about like Lola occupies the space that like a right. series of lions or a series of like large, like dangerous creatures would occupy in this circus, but it is Lola. Yeah. And, and she carries a whip as though she is a lion right. or a tiger or a, a bunch of elephants or bears or something. And right? he introduces her as the most dangerous of all animals. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A, a deadly creature with loving eyes, I think, is what he says. Right. Like, O'Fools really plays up the like, really plays up the circusness of it. Uh, and, and in hindsight, thinking about the way she's introduced, really like plays a big part of like cr like really laying the groundwork for the absurdity of this stuff um right from the beginning right like, yeah it lends to the idea that this is a, this is this doesn't this is an absurd uh, an absurdist view of it but it is it is a an evaluation of this sort of culture right yeah um 
yeah, I, I it was very fascinating. I, I just, yeah, I, I really liked the movie. The other thing that I kept thinking about when I was watching it, probably because of the Technicolor, but I don't think it's entirely the Technicolor, is I couldn't fully shake a certain sort of like perverted version of a live action, like a 50s, 60s live action Disney movie vibes. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I mean is like, it, it, no, like, not in like a way, like, I don't know how to describe it. Like, it, because, like, if you think about the sorts of movies that I'm thinking of, like, you know, your bed knobs and broomsticks and, and, and your, and your chitty chitty bang bangs and all those kind of things, they have absurdist qualities to them, but they're not commentary. Right. They don't, they don't contain any, any like commentative like content. They're not about like evaluations of society writ large or something like that. So, like, but this has some of those vibes to it. The, the the same sort of absurdist absurdist elements to it, but like in service of actual like critical commentary on society, right? I don't know how to describe. Like, you can almost kind of get a sort of Mary Poppins esque sort of thing about it. I mean, certainly Technicolor helps, right? Like the way the color shot has that feel that those movies had too. But there's a it still also plays around with absurdity it, with Technicolor and a lot of really bright, like set dressing and everything. Things are very brightly colored and there's a lot of sort of things that don't a hundred percent make sense happening on screen. But instead of being in service of just being a silly kids movie, it's in service of sort of cultural commentary. Right. This is an interesting thing to me. I, I don't know. I it's just a feeling I kept getting while I was watching, especially the circus scenes. Was that like, what if I was watching a Disney movie, but right. it was hyper antithetical to what a Disney like an live action Disney movie is? Like I don't know. Yeah. Well, no. I think there's, there's and it's maybe to be even kind there. of to a certain extent commenting on what yeah. live action Disney movies right. are. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of the. The color aspect was sort of thrust on O'Fools. This is his only his only right. color film, and he was sort of forced to do it. And he embraced it, but he embraced it on his own terms. And he rewrote the yeah. script to lean into the color. And the well, yeah, exactly. You can feel it, right? Like it's like, yeah. oh no, no! If you're gonna make me do color, I'm gonna do color. <laughs> I mean, we've got and there's a lot of there's in, the coloring in this is intense. Like we've really got intense armies of people in in uniform colored outfits and faces painted or the children <laughs> those kids wearing the whole red outfits with yes, yeah. with with red face masks and uh and and numbers on them uh i'll have nightmares about them uh but <laughs> uh yeah you know he's he's clearly embraces and like the the story about you know when he arrived for on on set for the uh for the the sequence in the uh in the circus and they had a bunch of people in blackface and he said no 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 they need to be in greenface you know it is uh even his son uh says you know when i talked about that to him later he says it was just a, an exercise in power um but also it's an exercise in in the artistry here you know we still do have people in blackface in these sequences right uh but it's also just upping you know we've got blocks of different colored uh folks you know we've got the the kids in red and then people who are all in green with green painted faces and um 
and yellows well, and blues. I, and I know. kind of wonder if, if to a certain extent, a fool's get in, gets fully by the time we get to the, the into this movie deeply, where a fool's is also to a certain extent has crossed the boundary into making commentary on the art that he's being basically forced to make in that like like Lola Montez and him are almost kindred spirits in the sense that like the thing that gives him power is also the thing that binds him up and makes him behave in certain ways right like he has all this power on this set to do what he wants except for he can't do what he wants right like he has to use this actress he has to do it in color he has to do x y and z he has so much authority on set to make what he wants except for in the parts that he has no authority right in the in the parts that he has no choices right and so you i think to a certain extent maybe a fool's feels a sort of a sort of kindred spirit feeling to that situation right like oh like i yeah i can do whatever i want in this movie except for about the things i can't do whatever i want <laughs> like i'm free except for when i'm not uh and including like using color right or or using this actress or or even, who who knows what else, right? What other things get like sort of handed down from the top, right? Yeah, yeah. You know his his use of color here just accentuates the spectacle that is, right. and maybe it's even a comment on color film itself. Maybe a fool's views right. co- yeah, color really film possible. as spectacle at that point in his career and his life. Um, who knows? You know, certainly there has been color film available to him prior to this, and this is his first color film. Uh, it's 1955. It's a little late to still be making black and white movies. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't know. There's a lot, there's a, on that end of things, it's stuff he could be saying, not stuff I necessarily know that he's saying. I'm, I'm trying to see if and what live action Disney films existed prior to this. Oh, see like, how absurd! How absurd they were by the time he made this, or not? Because I realize that Mary Poppins and things like that are much later, so it's like okay, but or is it more just a, a in that situation? If it's if it hasn't gotten that absurd yet, then if it's just a sort of a commentary in general about the idea that like, yeah, as you said, like color film is basically just its own spectacle, right? Like you've got your Gone with the Winds and things like that that are about that are almost are almost exist solely for the purpose of showing off color film, right? Um, uh, and then and then sort of finding out that he has to do the same thing, right? Yeah, because it's mostly not very uh, sort of absurdist stuff from Walt Disney at that point. So he's probably more addressing other sorts of color film that had come out prior to that with sort of some of these choices, right? Because like most of the stuff at this point is pretty pretty basic stuff at that point, right? We haven't even gotten to Shaggy Dog or any of that stuff yet. Darby uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People is still four years off. So right, well that's what I mean. It's like we haven't really gotten into the point where like sort of something we think of as mainstream versions of that that kind of film exists. So you kind of it's easy to imagine more it's a commentary on things that that how people almost use color film because they can not whether or not if they should right <laughs> like. You're just you're basically just showing off. Look at all this color I can do, right? Right, so, right, 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 right. Like, yeah, yeah. No, there, the circus sequences in this are uh, almost certainly uh, awful. Saying, "Oh, you want right. me to use color?" 
Yeah. Well, cool. right, and especially if you think about things like Wizard of the Oz exists right. already, Gone yeah. with the Wind, all these things that are like, check out Just, how much color we can put in this. And yeah. then so it's like him, yeah, being like, yeah, okay, color, huh? Right. Right. Okay, here we go. Yeah, the the circus stuff is a fool's making making the producers smoke the whole pack. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I love, I don't know, I, I love a guy who's antagonistic to his producers, too. So, you know, yes, I yeah. can't. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's really fascinating because we've we've encountered enough directors at the point. Is some 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 of the people who are antagonistic to the producers or other stakeholders annoy the shit out of me because they and then some of them make me very happy and I don't know where the line is. A fool's version of it makes me laugh and I like it and then there's other ones that I'm like, oh, you're just a jerk. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> Yeah. But I in general I, I, I tend to, I seem to be a fan of Old Fools's version. Yeah. Well there are there are certainly some stories we've heard about old fools where it's also oh you're just a jerk, yeah. but <laughs> yes, absolutely, and 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 it's really, I don't know, yeah, exactly, totally. I I just feel like the that French uh, television thing really put him in a different light for me, yeah, than he necessarily had been before, because um, it's just so long, it's just so much like people talking so extensively about him, yeah. We oftentimes don't get a lot of that, honestly, with this, like. We do about like real like certain directors, but yeah, it's. I wasn't expecting to spend an hour hearing about it. It's kind of interesting that you know the the major story of of just of him being a jerk. I think in the French television show is the cinematographer saying we can't do that tracking shot, and him saying I don't care. Right, uh, and both the cinematographer and Marcel backtrack on that story. In Marcel, uh, Marcel or Max by Marcel or Marcel on Max or whatever it's titled, the other documentary here that's that comes out in you know is put together in two thousand eight two thousand nine, uh, and they say that his actual response, the same guy talking, but both of them, uh, uh, Max also says this, that the actual response was, make it work, not I don't care, right. not, um, you know, which is a little different, um. You know, uh, you tell me it's impossible, and I say I don't care. Has an implication of make it work, but it's it's much more harsh. It's more abrasive, right? Yeah, it's more, more abrasive. And and I, you know, to a certain extent, I tend to believe the um, the the earlier one, just because it it would be fresher in their minds. Right, than, right. Than it is earlier. Fully another yeah. thirty years later, but also there is that whole thing about like what does the person who's making this film expect from you, right? Like people play to. And like people in general do have a tendency to tell people what they want to hear, right? So if there's an implication with this French cinema TV thing that like, oh, we want to know like all the other all the other famous auteurs are all getting like these sort of like horror stories told about them that show how 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 brilliant of like directors they are by by demonstrating how much of a jerk they were. If there's a sort of a, a, a mental implication that the only way to be a good director is to be an asshole, you might tell the story. You might bend the story that direction, whereas if, you know, 30 years on, you're like, well, you know, he's just a person that we liked working with. You might tell it in a more polite, like a gentler yeah, way. Yeah, but, right? it's, but, it's 30, know, but 30 years on is where we get the story about the little person actor, everyone thinking who is about to die. 
And no, they tell that one in the first one. Is too. it in the first one? I thought it's it was in, in the second one. It might one. be in both, but he definitely tells it in the first one. Um, I see. I I don't know. I didn't want. I didn't check out the other one, so I don't know if it was in both. But it well, is if you didn't watch the other one, then certainly it's in the first one. And I I thought. Well, I, was, I, that's what I mean. Is I know it's in yeah. the first one, but I don't know if it's in the second one or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm just you know, it's hard to. Um, it's hard. It's really hard to get a read on it. It just it it is because like. Again, the same people will literally in the same documentary say what seemingly contradictory things about right, it. As right, a right, right, right. And what you get is like, well, this probably was a very com- people are complicated. It's probably a pretty complicated person who was sometimes a an asshole and sometimes really nice and right. like people tend to be. Right. You know? Right, right. I mean, like what we what we've gotten used to though is and I think part of what's driving us here is that we've gotten used to essentially horror stories about directors. Yeah. We're like, we're like, it's just one thing after another, right? Where it's like, oh, you you hear one story about how much of a jerk they were, and then you hear twenty more, and like, people will are seem to be making excuses for them rather than telling you actually how nice they were. Whereas this doesn't necessarily have exactly that vibe. It has more about more of that more complicated, fleshed out human being sort of vibe to it, which is like, yeah. well, you know, yeah, he he absolutely. Th- Absolutely seemed like he was going to let this person get hanged to death, but also was really nice to people. So what? It, I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, the hanging to death thing is not great. Let me be very clear here. Right. But then also everybody seemed to razz him about it forever, and uh, right. he seemed to. It sounds like he was pretty embarrassed about it. Sounds like he regretted it, and also in the framing of the story, I don't know how much is this is trying to save face for a guy who just died. Who you know, no one seems really interested in saving face for a fool through most of this movie. Uh, right. But you know, the guy does say we all thought he was choking because he was caught up in the rigging, but implies that he was not actually in danger. Right. Uh, so who knows? Anyway, uh, yeah. We got to have at least one negative story about him, I guess. That's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's some other ones where it sounds yeah. like he was a little, like he was maybe overly um, pushy about some things he wanted, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then just, I don't know, just constantly balance that against the the lighting guy saying that how how nice he was. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's really, it's really fucking weird. It just yeah. is. When even again, some of the actors talking about how nice he was, right. And the and the costume guys saying they basically had carte blanche because he didn't care about that aspect unless it was contradictory. Right, it really just seems like working for O'Fools, if you were a cinematographer, was maybe a challenging job, a uh, very demanding job, and maybe any other job on his set, like you could, you know, take your smoke breaks whenever you wanted to, uh, you know. But if you were the cinematographer, like look out, you better be doing exactly what he wants. Um, it's just a, which is a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, man. I am, uh, I hope that someday there's more ovals in the Criterion Collection. It looks like, you know, uh, there was some talk in some of the bonus features of an early film from 1933 called, uh, uh, Le Belle, I believe, or Le Belle. Um, uh, that, uh, was another period piece, but, uh, something that had a lot of, a lot of what would make him famous, seeds of it at least. So, I don't know. That might be interesting to check out at some point. Maybe the Criterion Collection will uh, serve it to us. Maybe it won't. Who knows? Uh, 
But for I now, mean, it's 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 hard to tell what it is because it it has very little information about yeah. it. But uh, yeah, it's a silent film, even. Yeah, uh, but for oh now, no no, it's it has the same plot as a silent film. I see. My bad. But for now, this is our last Ophuls in the collection. Uh, so say goodbye to him. Uh, we got a box set and then one additional. Uh, that is uh, sometimes that's how it is. Yeah, uh, that's the it is a it is a uh, Criterion Collection special. Right, we, right, 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 right. We're gonna dump a bunch of them on you, and then maybe we'll get the rights to another one of them, and you're done. Yeah, yeah. I really bet, though, given the timing, that this was this was they put out the box set when the re-release sure of Lola Montes was effect, yeah. was coming out or was announced, and then they put out Lola Montes when they got and, it. And, and again, I, one has to wonder. I mean, just looking at like his his filmography, it's quite possible, like especially with like some of it taking place, you know, right post war and then right before the war. And it's also very easy to imagine that he was just basically doing basic studio stuff. <laughs> the other films are just not that interesting to watch. You know, it's quite possible. Hard to know, right? Yeah. Ah, uh, well, this week we've been talking about Lola Montes. Um, from uh, from Max O'Fool's his final film released in 1955, uh, shortly before his death in 1957. Next week we will be talking about a Steve McQueen film, but not that Steve McQueen, director Steve McQueen, in his 2008 film Hunger, about the uh, the 1981 Irish hunger strikes. So thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.